Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I am Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And with us today is one of the, the greatest minds that I know, and I'll let that mind speak for itself later. But uh, here's a quick story. So one day, there was a man from Indiana who had become an engineer. And he thought, man, when I'm an engineer, everyone's like, wow, you must be smart. And he thought, I'll show them. I'll show them that I can be even smarter. And he thinks, I'm going to get a PhD. And his friends say, oh, a PhD in engineering? And he's like, no, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to get a humanities PhD. And he goes and he becomes a PhD uh, in religion. And um, thank God, because he's taught me more about the New Testament than I could ever imagine. And so with us today, I am proud to announce, is Dr. Jim McConnell who's going to talk thank about himself and correct my story. No, thank you, Court. That it, uh, yeah, you got the, you got all the details, right. Um, in broad brushstrokes, I, I was born in Indiana, uh, in Indianapolis. When I, uh, graduated from high school, I had had enough of Indiana. So I went to North Carolina state in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, and became an engineer. Um, and I did that because I was pretty good at science and math and I knew uh, engineers could get a job and make uh, pretty decent money. So I did that for a while. And um, for four years of that, I lived in Germany and that's part of my story because my time in Germany was um, a very spiritual time, which I, I did not expect that at all. Uh, and came back um, and eventually started seminary um, after uh, becoming a teacher at community at Piedmont Community uh, Central Piedmont Community College in Charlotte. I was teaching electrical engineering technology and started seminary. Uh, finished seminary and realized that yeah, I was being called to do a PhD, um, and so I went and did that. And I've been teaching New Testament now for the last twelve years and have thoroughly. Uh, enjoyed my time doing that. Um, it's, it's just been incredible, especially to have students, good students like Court. You flatter me. As a, as a kind of a introductory question, and we ask this a lot on Zoom and because that's the world that we're in right now, but where are you physically right now in the world? Physically right now, I'm in my home in Boiling Springs, North Carolina where uh, Gardner-Webb is located. So I teach at the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb. Gotcha. And I, I think I caught the answer to this earlier, but just to clarify, what kind of an engineer were you doing? And tell me a little bit more about your experience in Germany. That's really interesting that you said it was a spiritual experience. I want to hear a little bit more yeah. of that if, you, if you're willing to share with us. Oh, sure. Yeah, my, my field was electronics engineering. And uh, more specifically, I, well, I was in the field for 14 years uh, in industry. Um, I was always in uh, new product design. Uh, so I was in design and development. And I had this background in German. I started taking German in the ninth grade. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in a school system that, um, well, to give you an idea, my uh, high school graduating class was over 1,100 people. Um, so in 
in four years of German, I had three different German teachers, not because people left. It's because that's how many teachers were teaching German in my high school. Um, so between my junior and senior year of high school, I went and lived with a family in Germany. And so I had a really strong background in German, got to NC state and was taking engineering classes and it wasn't an official minor, but I, I took German every semester that I could. Uh, so I had this really strong foundation in German. When I got out, I thought, boy, it would really be cool to combine um, my German language skills with engineering. But I thought, you know, when's that going to happen? Well, I was sitting at my desk one day and a headhunter called and he goes, I'm, I'm looking for a guy who's willing to go to Germany for three years. Um, and I said, well, all I need to do is talk to my wife. Um, and, and we didn't have any children at the time. Uh, but we still kind of struggled. I mean, picking up and moving to Europe for three years is a pretty major decision. And so, you know, we, we're both fairly logical people. So we were weighing the pros and cons and this, and we finally decided this is the time of our lives. We're going to do this. Let's do it. Well, we got over there and it was, it was very challenging. Um, I had my work and I had a really strong language base. My wife was, she was not able to work. Um, and her language skills weren't quite like mine. So she struggled uh, a little bit at first, but we ended up finding an English language uh, international Baptist church in Mannheim, Germany. And this was a place, uh, it's, it's church in a fallen world. So of course it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was an incredible small congregation of people from all over the world, all over Europe, Africa, the States. And it was just uh, a, a place where God basically said, okay, I have got you away from all the distractions that you had back in your former life. Now I'm going to get your attention. Here's what being a disciple of Jesus looks like. Hmm. And it, it was an eye-opening experience for me, uh, a spirit-opening experience for me. Um, and so w both my wife and I came back from, from that experience in Germany after four years, we ended up staying four years and, and a few months actually. And, and, and at one point toyed with the idea of staying permanently, but uh, that didn't happen. Uh, but we came back changed spiritually, uh, changed from a family perspective because our two sons were born over there, just had a whole different idea of what it meant to be a follower of Christ and that, to me, was the, the foundational moment that brought me to where I am now as a professor of New Testament. That's um, amazing, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. Uh, our scriptures, sometimes, you, you know, there's ways for us to tie in, and I'm just thinking about our scripture today, but I'll wait until we, we get a chance to read it before, we, before I ask any more questions. But thank you for sharing with us that introduction. I want to point something out that it dawned on me when he was telling him telling his story. Uh, he mentioned a Baptist church in Germany. And that was the first time that I realized that in the history of pastor potluck, all seven months or whatever of it, this is the first time that Baptists have outnumbered anyone on this show. So congratulations. <laughs> we, have, we have broken the barrier. Baptists are coming. All right. Well, the good kind of Baptist, not the not the 
SBC ones now. <laughs> you can edit that part out. Or not. <laughs> well, Baptists, do your worst. Today we're reading uh, from the lectionary two passages from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I may ask you about this later, but uh, the Gospel of Mark does not have a nativity story. And in year B, we focus a lot on the Gospel of Mark. But in, in, in this week's lectionary, which is the fourth Sunday of Advent, we're looking at two passages from Luke to help us get into the Christmas spirit. And the first one we're going to read is the story of Mary and Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, also called the Annunciation. Uh, Court, would you like me to read this? I can, you can, he can. We can get a fourth person involved. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> Court, why don't you read this for us? I will read it. Luke 1, 26 through, 20, through 38. I'm using the NRSV. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. <clears throat> he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Thus ends the reading. Thank you, Court. Well, you're welcome, Peter. Jim, um, so I want to turn this over to you a little bit, but uh, to start start off, I have this question. It seems to me that in this passage, there's a lot of surprise, you know, this arrival of this angel explaining to Mary everything that's going to happen. Um, of course, the, those famous words, do not be afraid, that we hear angels saying all the time. Uh Surprise seems to be a theme here. And also this transition that Mary is going through in a very short period of time between maybe confusion or not understanding the situation that she's found herself in to total clarity um, with the help of this angel who has explained kind of how things are going. Uh, and it just occurred to, occurred to me that there's, maybe there's a connection here with the story that you shared already in terms of your time um, in Germany, where being part of this church that you mentioned was a time where there was, you kind of had this, this clarity that you and your wife had this um, kind of transition from co confusion, 
about where you were and what you were doing and what it, maybe even what it meant to be Christian to clarity about that and to finding a new direction. And so I wonder if you would talk about those concepts and, you know, maybe, maybe um, how you really experienced what, what we see Mary experiencing here of a transition from confusion to clarity and the surprise that happens along the way. And not only that, but uh, let me add another concept to your story as if I could add anything to it. Um, but you mentioned that you did not expect to find this when you were headed to Germany. Right. And, and I think that is, um, that, that is the, the main thing that I see in comparing my story with Mary. We, we were presented with this opportunity and we analyzed it from, and again, this, this kind of our personality. Uh, we analyzed making the, the, the ramifications of the decision from every angle. You know, we're going to, we're going to be leaving our parents. Uh, uh, you know, what, what are the finances going to look like? Oh, we're going to have the opportunity to travel throughout Europe, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Every once in a while we threw in, yeah, I'm sure we'll find a church. But, but that was, that was just this thing that was not even a consideration. And, then we get over there and, and we go through this time of pr pretty intense struggle. Um, it, it the, the joke around my family has, so my two, we have two sons and a daughter and my, and my two sons were born there and then my daughter was born when we got back to the States. Um, so the joke was always sitting around the dinner table, uh, looking at all three kids and especially my daughter. Oh, you remember when that happened in Germany? Oh, wait, you were never there. Yeah. Um, just to keep rubbing it in. Hmm. Um, we, when we got there, it, it was this time of, of real struggle. Hmm. Um, we, we got there, uh, this was right around the time that the, the Berlin wall was coming down. This was late 89. Uh, apartments were almost impossible to find. Uh, I would literally get up at uh, six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday when I get the paper and start calling people. Cause you had to, because to try and find a place you had to jump on it like that. So we had this incredible struggle and, 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 I compare that to, to Mary in a microcosm when, when the, the angel Gabriel meets her and says, oh, by the way, you are going to bear the son of God. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? But then by the end of the passage, she has this great reassurance after this incredible surprise. Hmm. Um, the great surprise for us was you guys thought this was all about travel. You thought it was all about, you know, meeting new people you thought it was being on your own no this is about getting to know who i am and who i want you to be hmm. um and and i would hope i'm not going to claim it but i would hope that at the end of that time we were and and still are able to say with mary um you know l l here am i the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Uh, I, I don't want to claim that, um, but to some degree, we were brought to that point. We had to realize through that struggle um, that we 
God was calling on us to completely depend on God. And, and we were, we were depending on too many other things, you know, friends and uh, both of us earning a good income and all these different things. And God says, you've been fooling yourself all along. Uh, I want to be the central focus of your lives, not all this other stuff. Um, And like I said, I hope that God brought us to a point where we are able to say in all situations subsequent to that, you know, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So what would you say to a person like me? And in your answer, feel free to use any Bible or personal reference that you want. But a person like me is a meticulous planner and does not take risks. What? I can't live like that. One of the things I respect about Peter, you're talking to Peter like, oh, let me tell you about something that happened to me in like Ecuador or something. I don't do stuff like that. I can't live like that. Um, I have to have a plan. I have to know that I have a job. I have to know that uh, all my stuff is taken care of. And I do not leave if I have a secure situation. So, but I admire people like you two who have, how, how do you how do you convince someone who has to have security and has to have a plan that it's not only okay but recommended to just trust God? Not that I don't believe in God, I do, but it's tough for me. Yeah, and that, that's a great question. My my first response, Court, is to say, you know, we're all wired differently, um, and. When I say that, I don't mean to say that God has pre-programmed us in a certain way. Um, It's it's our life experiences and everything else that kind of bring us to the to that point of saying, "Oh, I I love to take risks," or "No, I don't want to take risks. I want to plan." So, um, my 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 first thought is, God knows that you are like that. Um, But my second thought is going to sound contrary to the first because I'm going to say, but God can always say, yes, but I know you're like this, but that's not fair. I don't look at that God. <laughs> I, I know. Um, you know, I, and, and you, if you think about Mary, um, well, I know we're in Luke, but I always think about this in, in the context of Joseph. You know, and, and, and okay, and this is probably going to reveal more about myself than I ought to. But I think about Joseph after Mary gets pregnant and, and he goes he goes to the local tavern and he sits down and his buddies next to him go. And this is, you know, four or five months in when Mary's showing, they start elbowing him and say, hey, Mary, good job, buddy. And he says, wasn't me, <laughs> wasn't me. It was the it was the Holy Spirit, and they're going, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, I'm sure that was a very uncomfortable situation for for Joseph and for Mary. Um, but at some point, and, and I think this is part of everybody's journey. At some point, your faith has to have legs. You you, you have to you have to go out on faith in order for God to prove to you that God is God. And so I think, I think God purposely at times drags us out of our comfort zone in order 
for God to prove that. So you, you've taken us into Matthew, and I want to speak to that briefly in the context of this needing a plan versus being called to take risks. They had a plan in Matthew. They, it, it comes out and says they were engaged to be married, but had not yet yada, yada, yada. And so they had a plan or at least some sort of an outline of how their life would be. And then all of a sudden it shattered, which mm-hmm. in my case shatters my entire psyche because that's not, that's not fair to me. Um, so your point is well made. You had to leave Luke to do it, but your point is very yeah. well made. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Jim, for sharing um, your uh, your personal life example and uh, and also for for fielding a a question which maybe you had never considered about your connection the, the qu- connection between your life and the story of Mary and the Annunciation. I just kind of. Um, threw that one at you. So you did a very good job. Thank you. What you you didn't know about me, Jim, is that I was born in Wiesbaden, Germany in 1988. Uh, Really? Yeah. My dad was was, uh, in the Air Force. My parents were living in Italy, but uh, the closest Air Force maternity ward, as as far as I understand it, was in uh, Wiesbaden, Germany. And so they, they went up there for, for my delivery. So I can relate to your story. And even though I was, I was kind of having, having the experience that your sons had of being born there, but maybe not remembering uh, what it was like, but, uh, but certainly hearing the stories from that you shared and the stories that my parents shared with me about their time abroad, uh, there was definitely some connection there. I find this interesting here in this passage of the Annunciation that the angel arrives and tries to clarify this great plan for Mary's life that is other than what she was expecting. And we just talked about how um, she kind of transitions from this confusion to this clarity about what her life will be like. And she, you know, grants consent here with these words, 38 let it be uh, with me just as you have said. And along the way, she is introduced to the reality that her relative Elizabeth is going through. And I wonder, you know, if you could talk to us a little bit about how God is using family structures, people that she's familiar with, to kind of help her along this journey, not just leaving her, like you said, we do need to be totally dependent upon God, but then there's also people that come alongside us. And the angel right here in this Annunciation, you know, introduces her to her relative Elizabeth as someone who is going through a similar experience. Would you tell us more about what you think about that kind of introduction and how God is working through those, those uh, family relations? Yeah. Yeah. Uh- just just for some background and at the at the risk of of being a little bit too technical uh, i think it 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 bears um uh, us looking at it, it you, you can't read this annunciation without having read the annunciation to zechariah um first of all it's it's this typical uh pairing of a man and a woman in luke uh, this occurs all throughout Luke's gospel. Uh, 
something happens to a man, something similar happens to a woman. Something happens to a woman, something similar happens to a man. Uh, and, and I think we're supposed to, supposed to read these as uh, almost like panels. So, so we're, we're constantly comparing. And, and Elizabeth is, is the link. Elizabeth is, is the one that links the two. So uh, your, your point, Peter, is well made. You have Elizabeth who, who serves uh, within the form of the narrative. She's the sign uh, in, in, in angel Ophanes. Uh, they, they follow a specific form. What's that, be that the word? Appearance of, an, appearance of an angel. Yeah, an angelophany is when an, an angel appears to a human. I'm sorry. No, that's um, good. I just, I, I like to ask those questions because when it's a word I've never heard of before, I want to know what it means. Yeah. Um, so in the normal form, the angel appears, uh, the person to whom the angel appears shows fear. The angel says, don't be afraid. The angel makes an announcement. And then the person asks for a sign. Uh, both Zechariah and Elizabeth do this, uh, uh, Zechariah and Mary, sorry, do this. Um, because Mary says, you know, how, how's this going to be since I have not known a man? Uh, and then the, uh, Gabriel explains and then says, basically the sign is Elizabeth, your, your relative is pregnant. So you're right. This family member is, is used, uh, so to speak, to put it in, in words, maybe that don't quite fit to, to get Mary on board. Okay. Um, but, but your point is, is well made. And, and I, I see this in the context, not just of, of biological family, but the church family. And again, I think of my own story. Uh, I, I made this transition from uh, being an engineer in industry to teaching engineering at, um, at a community college. Um, I didn't know at that point that my life was on this particular trajectory that I'm that I'm on now, but I knew it was changing. And it was it was during that four and a half years that folks in my church here in the States started seeing something in me that I didn't see. And so it, during that time I was teaching, uh, you know, I went from a, a job that was, I don't know, maybe 50 hours a week to I was supposed to be on campus 30 hours a week. I had time on my hands. Uh, so I started a master's in computer engineering uh, and I had some a, a pastor and a, a very good friend who said, you know, you could be spending that time in seminary. Well, th that was not on my radar scope at that point. Um, and, and but again, they saw something in me that I that I never would have seen. Um it's kind of funny because I got into seminary and I did this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure court did it with us too. We, you do a personality profile. It wasn't Myers Briggs, but it was something along the lines of, you know, what's your personality and how does it relate to ministry? And I'll, I'll never forget. Um, because the, the curve for ministry went like this and mine went like this. <laughs> and, and the guy that was going over with me said, um, he literally said, you know, you may want to consider a different profession. Um, but you know, God had other plans. Um, so I, I was greatly affirmed by my church family that you need to move in this direction. 
Uh, and that was enough to get me around those naysayers who said, I don't know, you, you may, this may not work out too well for you. Um, so yeah, I, I see that, that element, especially of church family. And, and I see it, we need to be hearing those voices around us that see us differently than we see ourselves. But we also need to be that voice to other people. We need to be encouraging folks. Maybe we need to be discouraging some folks. Maybe, maybe we see that person whose curve is inverted and we say, ooh, that may not work out. Um, but, but we need those relationships in our lives to, to, that, that the Spirit uses to, to get us on board, for lack of a better term. Yeah, similarly, I started off my career in, in international development. Uh, you know, my parents were travelers. I, I was born overseas. I grew up traveling. Um, uh, languages were coming pretty easily to me. Uh, I did two years in Ecuador in the Peace Corps and, uh, you know, was really knee deep into this uh, international development career and then started to feel stuck and was thinking that business school would be a good way to sort of transition, kind of like you were taking, you know, an engineering master's, you know, to sort of like build on what you've already had and then maybe go in a different direction. And my friend, thankfully, said to me, Peter, I know you and I know the conversations that you want to have and I, and I see where, how it would be, how you would think that business school would be a good way to get to the result that you're looking for, but have you have you tried seminary or have you thought about seminary? And in no way was I thinking about seminary, but he was right because the kind of uh, problems that I was hoping to solve in the world were, were highly moral. They were moral problems. I was, I was to my core, someone who was thinking about ethics. I didn't even know what that word meant at the time. Uh, <laughs> But as I was always looking for, how do we live our lives? How are we supposed to live? How ought we to live? And he's like, you're not going to have those conversations in business school. Uh, <laughs> so no offense to those MBAs out there. I'm sure you have conversations about morals and ethics, and I, I, I would happily engage. We need to get somebody with an MBA on this show. But that's, but that's super helpful, uh, this, the the way that you shared how, you know, that transition happens and how our church family can help direct and guide us. And that's what happens in, in the story of Mary and Elizabeth. So I want to read and connect us from our one Luke reading to our second Luke reading. Before and you do that, can I, can I make a quick kind of maybe observation and kind of maybe joke? If you must. Uh, I must. Uh, Jim, what one word reveals to you in his story about uh, how he went from one direction towards ministry, what one word reveals to you that he's in his first year as a pastor? This is a test to see if you are listening very carefully. I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> I wasn't listening carefully enough, Court. I'm sorry. As he's telling the story of a friend that directed him towards seminary, he said, thankfully. Thank this job, my man. See, see, a, a, a full-time pastor recognizes that. I'm in the ivory tower, so I... Yeah, you are. I want to get in that tower. <laughs> Throw down the ladder. Right, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Let's connect the two pericopes. 
All right. So let's, yeah, let's transition here. So uh, and I think we're getting into some good stuff here. So what we just read, the angel appears to Mary and explains to her what has been deeply perplexing, what must have been deeply perplexing, and, and gives her Elizabeth as someone who will help her to understand what's going on. This is, as you said, Jim, her sign that Elizabeth herself, who in her old age has become pregnant as well, and, and also someone who can walk alongside her, maybe as um, those of us in the church who see people's ministry gifts do for one another. So Mary, it says, and this is from the Common English Bible, in verse 39, says that Mary got up and hurried to the Judean highlands, and she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. That's the transition. Mary enters the house of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth confirms for her this calling that's on her life. And then we get a passage of scripture that is called the Magnificat. And Jim, I'm going to need your help understanding this passage a little bit more in depth. I would love to know if you have any uh, insight into the context. The, the style looks very poetic. Um, give us a little bit of background if you know, uh, you know, kind of what this meant to early Christians. This, but let me just read it for us and so then we can have a, a little bit of a conversation. This is uh, Mary's song, in verse, starting in verse 46 of Luke, of Luke chapter 1. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored. Because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. The Magnificat. So help us understand. I mean, it seems to me that this this song erupts out of Mary as Elizabeth greets her as sort of the confirmation of what the angel had told her just really settles in. But what can you tell us about uh, the, the context of this song or how it fits into the larger Luke narrative or what it might have meant to early Christians? Okay. Um, yeah. The, the first thing is, uh, as Peter has said, this is known in church history as the Magnificat, and that that comes from the the Latin word that uh, is translated into English. My soul magnifies the Lord. So the Magnificat is is Latin that comes from that. 
Um, I, I would term it a song. Um, it, it, and, and this is not my area of expertise, but I think it has a, a certain rhythm and meter to it. It has certain allusions to the Psalms uh, for sure. When you hear, you know, the, the strength with his arm, it, from a narrative standpoint, it's interesting that, so you have the Annunciation to Zechariah, and then you have the Annunciation to Mary. And if, if, you, uh, if you leave out the, the interaction with Elizabeth, just set that aside for a second. After the Annunciation to Mary, you have Mary singing a song. And then the next thing you hear is uh, Zechariah singing a song after John the Baptist is born. So you have this kind of nice chiastic structure. So you start with Zechariah, then you go to Mary, then you repeat Mary, and then you go back to Zechariah. Now, if you include the Elizabeth passage in it, that happens in between the two Marys, which makes it even the, all the more significant, because usually in this chiastic X pattern, the, the middle point is the important point. And uh, as Peter read, uh, what's significant there is Elizabeth calls the baby in utero, in Mary, Lord. Now, that Greek word that's underneath the, the word we translate Lord can simply mean master or sir, but it can also mean Lord with a capital L. And it makes no sense to understand it as master. You, you wouldn't call a baby in utero my master or sir. So you have this, this, this recognition, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, which is a very important phrase in both Luke and Acts. When, when someone is filled with the Spirit, you know, our ears need to perk up. She says, uh, why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? So, so in the middle of this very important pattern, you have Jesus being called Lord, um, which then leads into Mary singing this song of praise. And, and not coincidentally, she starts off by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. So, so uh, I had... Uh, court may not even remember this but he had to read a book in one of my classes um yes yep he does Raymond. remember it <laughs> what was the it, book it, uh you went uh peter you went to duke right i did yes it was cavin rose um it was his dissertation in published form um it's he taught my exegesis of acts class and uh okay. it left a uh a powerful mark on me. Yeah, he is an incredible scholar, and the book was incredible. Court didn't like it because he nope. he quoted all these German sources in German. He he didn't translate them, <laughs> and that was my bad. That was uh, I didn't I didn't read the book beforehand. But anyway, he speaks um, German. Like, he didn't. I need think that. I've I've heard the story of this scholar, and now to put a name with it and to and to realize that it was one of my favorite professors at Duke is pretty funny. <laughs> he didn't do that in class, Corey. He didn't just speak German at us and not translate, I promise. You talk, students! <laughs> but having said all that, I, I still don't remember the title of the book. But anyway, it was, it's really... Oh, myself somewhere. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, this, this song... And again, I think song is is the right term, is a song of praise. 
but it also introduces an incredibly important theme in Luke. Well, one that you really already hear with the angel coming to Mary because she's, uh, she's of low birth. Um, she, she's, you know, on the, on the status scale, she's pretty much at the bottom. Um, and so for the angel to come to her is, is quite a subversion of everything worldly. But when she, when she gets into the meat of the song, she sings, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Um, so you have this, this incredible reversal that, that you see throughout Luke and Acts that what, what humanity in the world consider lowly and of no value, that's what God actually values. And the converse is also true. Um, it's, it's, I, I think it's a, it's a very challenge, a, a very large challenge to read Luke as a middle-class American in the 21st century. Um, I think it's, it would be much easier to read Luke as, uh, you know, as a, as a migrant worker or somebody from Honduras or something, because it speaks to, to, to the, the marginalized and the oppressed in this world that, you know, you're going to get yours and those rich folks who are oppressing you, they're going to get theirs as well. Um, so her song introduces this very, very prevalent theme that, that rumbles throughout uh, Luke. And I would say also in acts because it's not just the Jews who salvation is not just coming to the Jews. It's also coming to the Gentiles who are the marginalized, the lowly, the less of status compared in a Jewish person's eyes. Um, the fact that salvation is coming to the Gentiles, that would have been a shock to, to any self-respecting Jew in the first century. Well, uh, two things. Um, the first one is, this being Christmas and, and Christmas is usually when we see this, it really stands out to me that we use this as a way to celebrate a holiday that is so steeped with commercialism with us going out and getting all the things we like and the things we need. And, and, and yet what it's telling us is you guys who have get ready to be have nots. And then the other thing, which is not a point, but a question it's fairly obvious what you do with Kurios, which I'll repeat what you said. It, it's Lord, which could mean sir, master, or, you know, God. It's obvious, it's kind of obvious what you do with that when Mary says it, my soul magnifies the Lord. But what do you, what do you make of Kurios in coming out of Elizabeth's mouth when she greets Mary and the baby leaps? Yeah, I, I think, Again, uh, Elizabeth being filled with the spirit truly recognizes what's going on. It takes being filled with the spirit to do so. Uh, but she understands what's happening. It's almost like uh, things are out of focus and then all of a sudden they just pop into focus and she gets it. But the, but the key, it seems to me, is she is filled with the spirit. It requires the spirit for us to see things as they really are. Um, and, and so, uh, I, I think she recognizes what's happening. Uh, 
her husband didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often, you know, you, yeah, well, and you can, you can, you can read his being struck mute in many ways, uh, or at least multiple ways. I, I, I see it as a punishment. You know, you're a priest by good, for goodness sake, you, you should get this. And you're asking me that question. Um, so yeah, you, you know, you're, you're going to have to be silent for a while and think about this. And he eventually gets it. Um, but she does, Elizabeth does, and Mary does, you know, may it be to me, as you have said, um, I'm your servant. She gets it. The, the, I, and I think this is significant. The, the women get it. The guy who is, who should, he's in the best position to understand. He's, he's the one who, who's the full-time pastor. He doesn't get it. Well, uh, us, but the women us, do. us being three guys here, all of whom are engaged in some sort sort of ministry, I can kind of identify with Zechariah. And part of the reason is you still have a sense of that today. Now, Gideon is not the Messiah. Okay. Gideon's my son. Um, but, and I'm certainly not God, but I, I kind of understand this whole us not getting it. Cause one of the, one of the things that I am so jealous of with women is they have all this gestation time to get to know this parasite that's within them. And they don't understand why we don't just pick up the baby and be like, Oh yeah, you belong in our family. It's a weird transition that they've had time to make and be comfortable with that we don't. And so in here, you kind of see a theological version of what we see biologically just in life. And Peter, hopefully you'll experience this one day. Um, and I'm not saying that in any kind of... Uh, As yet, re- I have only that. been a parasite. I have not had a parasite, <laughs> at least not a human parasite. Yeah. But anyway, it's, 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 it's weird how, uh, maybe it's not weird. It's fascinating to me and probably boring to the general listener, but it, how theologically you have this concept of this is what's going on and the women get it. And yet we see this in our own family structures where the baby is coming. The women are having all these things going on in their bodies, changing. They're, they're living with what's going on. And it's still a strange phenomenon to us who are just observers. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And, and, and I don't, I never want to be too hard on Zechariah because come on. I mean, this is, he was old. His wife couldn't have kids. I mean, this is a story. It's, it's a, it's a retread story from the old Testament. Uh, and so when you read it, you're thinking, oh, I know how this ends. Um, but I don't, I don't want to be too hard on him because, yeah, this, this comes out of nowhere. Uh, the angel says, your prayer has been heard. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what he was praying, but you can infer that he was praying for a child. Um, but, yeah, it, Zechariah is me in most cases. I don't, I don't get it. And, and it's only through the enablement of the spirit that I can finally see uh, and, and seeing is, is a, an incredibly important idea in, in Luke Acts. Um, it, it's not until I get enabled by the spirit that I can see exactly what God is doing. But, but I have to get myself out of the way long enough to allow the spirit to work. 
So what you're saying is, from biblically speaking, if you want a pastor who can see what the Lord is doing and is filled with the Spirit, probably should look for a woman pastor. Yeah, <laughs> That's what this passage would say. Yeah. I have two questions, Jim, that kind of come out of our lectionary group conversation yesterday and also my church Bible study. We, re- we read these, cha- these passages. Um, I am shamelessly using my congregation and my fellow pastors here in Canton to help me with my sermon prep for Sunday. That's just how it goes. Um, But two questions that came up that we really didn't come to any conclusion on that I have about the Magnificat and I would love for you to weigh in on are these. Mary is using the past tense as far as I can tell in the Magnificat um, that when she says, you know, he has shown strength his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. It sounds as though she's describing something that's already taken place. And so one question that came up that we're scratching our heads about is, you know, we could take that list that she gives and find examples of where God has done that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, in times prior to Mary, Mary's song. But is that what she's talking about? Or is she somehow talking about what is to occur through Jesus, uh, who she will give birth to in the future, but using the past tense? And if so, what, is that, what does that mean? Okay, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and Here's my answer that may be less than very good, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I think Mary at this point is um, she's she's being portrayed uh, very much like a prophet. And I think she's using uh, and again, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I do remember from seminary talking about the prophetic perfect in Hebrew. In which the scholar is is actually foreseeing something but talks about it using the the perfect tense which we normally understand as a as a past tense uh which to me it, it it's it's as if mary is saying god has set into motion this plan and it's it's as good as done we we can consider it accomplished uh you see this again when you get to um the, the third song uh, of the birth narrative in Luke. Uh, so you have Mary's song, then you have Zechariah's song, then you have Simeon's song, uh, where he's holding the baby and he says, you know, today my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, again, he is, he is speaking prophetically and, and he's, he's holding a, uh, a one-month-old infant, but yet he is, he is saying, this is your salvation. And this gets reinforced at the end of reinforced at the end of Mary's song when she says uh, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. She's connecting what God is doing now with what God began with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Zechariah does the same thing in his song. Uh, So. 
Mary, again, is able to see this, this red thread that starts with the, the Abrahamic covenant and runs through what's happening right now to the future. And for her, it's, as, it's, as, it's in stone. It's done. Because, because it is of God, this is going to happen. Uh, and it's as good as if it, it's as, as good as if it has already happened. It's amazing the way uh, just in a few verses, this, this unprecedented, seemingly unprecedented thing that's happening to Mary goes from completely confusing to basically in her own song, she reveals this powerful continuity in how God is acting throughout generations in the past, in the present, and in the future. That's to me. That's an amazing transition um, in in her perspective on what is going on. My second question is related to these reversals that we see her declare, and I want to know how do we interpret these, which seem to sen- seem like very bad news to certain people. Is there a way to read these as good news? When Mary says, he has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. And if we're understanding that she's speaking in this prophetic perfect in which she may be declaring things that are to come, is there any good news to be found here for those who are powerful, who are sitting on thrones, or who are rich. Um, at, at, this is the point at which um, it's good to remember that uh, Luke 1, 46 through 55 is, is not the only scripture we have. If, if this is all we have, then no, I, I don't see any good news here. Um, but thankfully we have thankfully we have the entire gospel of luke and i think if if uh, if if well thankfully we have an entire new testament and an old testament but if all you had was luke there's 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 still hope okay and and i think about luke 18 when you get to uh, the story of the rich ruler and uh, we all know what Jesus says. He says, you know, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, folks for centuries have been talking about this, this gate that camels had to bend down and go through. And that's all a bunch of malarkey. The, the metaphor that Jesus is using is exactly what he means. It is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's that he's comparing that to rich people entering the kingdom of God. But you got to keep reading because uh, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Hmm. So ultimately, there is good news. And and I think if you go back to Mary's song, the good news for those of us who have money is we get to hear her song and we get to hear that God is on the side of the oppressed and of the lowly and that we have the chance to get on board with that. 
Um, you know, I, I don't know if we should take Luke 14, 33 literally and to be a disciple, sell everything we have. Um, certainly that first community in Acts thought that's what we were supposed to do. Um, but at the very minimum, we should understand that God is on the side of those whom the world considers of very low status. And we have a chance to align ourselves with God's purposes and, and use our wealth and riches on behalf of those folks and on behalf of the kingdom. And I think that if, if we do a theology of possessions in Luke Acts, I think that is the message of it's not that you have so much. It's what do you do with it? Um, and, and I don't I don't like to water that down because I don't like to give folks in modern America the uh, the out to say, well, OK, well, I can go along in all my materialistic ways and not worry about it. Um, no, I think we do need to repent uh, of those materialistic ways. And like I said, align ourselves with the purposes of God and use them on behalf of others. Uh, and so the good news from this passage is we get to hear that and we still have a chance to, to get on board with, with what God is doing. Having said that here we are on a zoom call, um, using our cold fire, coal fired electricity, and talking to one another on devices that were probably made in sweatshops. So there's, there's kind of no way around it. Um, I, I, yeah, you, I agree. There are, there are myriad ways for us to, uh, to definite, I think, as you said, opportunities for us to repent, uh, you know, to look at what we have, the, the material wealth that we have and, and realize that, that I need to be doing something. I need to be focusing myself in some way that as to as to understand what what am I using all of this for? Is it for Greater the kingdom yeah. or is it just perpetuating my own comfort? Uh, Jim, you brought up Luke chapter 18, and I'm really glad you did. Uh, in my Bible, the translation I'm using, the common English Bible, sometimes will sort of uh, uh, align certain phrases so that you get these echoes throughout scripture and that passage that you mentioned where the disciples or those listening said well then who can be saved and jesus response um, in the common english bible says well nothing is impossible for god and we heard that very line uh from the from the angel in luke chapter 1 verse 37 and to me i hear that echo there and it's very helpful in explaining uh, how we can understand. And, and I, I love what you said that there is, that there's potentially good news here and that we can get on board. I think that's what Jesus is, is inviting the rich ruler to do, who is actually maybe it, if, when I go back and read that passage, maybe is feeling burdened actually by the possessions and the wealth that he has, but doesn't know how to give it up or hasn't had the invitation to do so. So Jesus gives him that invitation. And I think that's an invitation that, um, that we all have, that if it's, if it's a burden to you, if it's causing you this angst or this feeling of separation between you and your neighbor, between you and God, is it worth it to hold on to it? See, right. I, I think that's a good point, but I do worry that when we make that point, we give, like he said, we give people an out because the people that probably need to be burdened by their possessions would never see it as a burden. 
Um, and, and the answer, it's kind of like the dust bowl. The, the answer to we didn't have enough crops was plant more crops. The answer to we had too many crops was plant more crops. And that led to, you know, the ground being tilled up and then the, the dust bowl. For many people, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, the answer to this, I feel burdened, is, well, I just need more stuff. Uh, or I just need to make more money so that I can always get more stuff. Um, so I, I think what, what, I, what I'm gleaning from everything we're talking about is a, kind of a simple question that I guarantee you does not have a simple answer. How does one live out the goals and, and, and expectations of Mary's song in community? Because uh, it, it, it becomes very difficult to do. If you fast forward to Acts, you were talking about the communities that develop later on in Acts. They're looking back from the other side of the cross at all this stuff she's talking about in the, in the future tense as if it was past tense. But for them, it is past tense. And their answer is essentially to set up communities based on taking care of need. And perhaps that is what we are still being, well, almost, uh, not perhaps, certainly that is what we're still called to do. But how do we in our society today enact this great vision that she has? Um, <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, I, I, and I think about, um, I, I think about uh, chapter five when when jesus calls levi the tax collector and uh this is something you hear in uh in earlier in chapter five when um when jesus calls peter and john only in only in luke does it say they left everything and followed him so in mark the, probably the source for luke it says uh, they left their nets and followed him. Well, in Luke, it says they left everything. Uh, and that's what it says about Levi. He left everything and followed him. Um, well, the next scene then in 529 is Levi gave a great banquet uh, for Jesus in his house. It, well, if, if, he, if he literally left everything, who paid for the banquet? Well, it says Levi paid for the banquet. So I think you have to understand this as uh, Levi has had a, uh, an epiphany in what am I supposed to do with all my stuff? Well, I'm supposed to use it to serve Jesus. Um, and, and I think that's the key. Uh, you know, if I were to sell all my stuff and give it away to help people, that would last. It would kind of be like these stimulus checks that, you know, we got and, and they're talking about now. They're, they're short term. But, it, but if I am a good steward of my stuff and am always pointing towards that goal, then over a long period of time, I can help out a, a variety of people with their needs. And this, this sounds like I'm rationalizing, and maybe I am, right? And, and this, this is why it's so hard for me to preach Luke on stuff, because I, I don't want to take the edge off, because there, it is very edgy. It's hard for us in the 21st century in the United States to hear um, because we have so much and e even poor folks in the United States have a lot compared to other folks. 
Um, so I don't want to take the edge off, but I don't think it's the whole, whole story that we just jettison everything uh, and become like St. Francis with CC and, and, and walk around naked, you know, being a follower of Jesus. Uh, I think it, it, the call is to be a wise and generous steward, always pointing toward the king, toward kingdom values. Um, and, and that's, that's holistically, that's with all, every part of our life, including, you know, what we earn and, and, and our stuff. Yeah. And, and I think I, I like how you describe that because it runs contrary to another inclination of, um, I guess, modern day American culture or psyche. And that is like this instant gratification thing. If there's something wrong, let's fix it right away. You know, and I think what you're saying is that if we sold everything that we had and we gave the money away, that, you know, people reading this passage and feeling very convicted might think, well, that's the only thing that I'm supposed to do. But I believe that God um, desires agents, that the work of the kingdom is ongoing, right? And, and the work of being a disciple is an orientation towards God's kingdom. And so it's, it's, Maybe, you know, if all that we can do because of wealth's great control over our lives is just in a single fleeting moment to make that decision to give everything up. Maybe some people, that's how they have to have to do with it, because the, the, the power of wealth is so great over them. But I think the goal of Christian discipleship is to orient our lives so that at every moment where we have an opportunity to use what not just wealth, but power or influence we have uh, to, to lift up the lowly um, and to fill the hungry with good things. We take that opportunity. I think that's what discipleship looks like. And so I really appreciate what you're saying, but that's also hard, right? Because that means a lifetime of dedication, of prayer, of uh, conviction, of repentance, and of tracking how am I living in relationship to the kingdom of God and to the, the destination to which this vision that Mary gives us um, is pointing us. And what you've done is not you, but what then happens is when you have a balance that you have to strive to produce in your life, then what you also have is an internal struggle, a psychological struggle. So if you want to do what's right with what God has blessed you with, you want to be a good steward, then you're going to constantly have that struggle of, am I being, am I doing well with this? Am I, am I helping the community? Am I exploiting others? All these things are going to be, you're going to, you're entering into a wrestling match with yourself. And so it, it really is a challenge. It's extremely challenging. Um, you know, and, and I, I am, well, who knows, but I don't think I'm that many years from retirement. Uh, and so I'm thinking, you know, how, how are we going to live without an income? Um, so, so the struggle continues, uh, you know, all through life. Uh, but I, but I, if, if you're struggling, if one is struggling with it, I think one is on the right track. <laughs> if you're not, then you may have to stop and think, why am I not struggling with this? Um, because it is, it's very challenging. It's very difficult. Well, Jim, thank you so much for all of the insight that you have um, 
introduced us to, that you have guided us towards in this podcast. Jim, do you have any final words for us as we prepare ourselves and our congregations for Christmas, uh, even coming from these, these very texts at the beginning of Luke? Um, maybe not so much from these texts in particular, but one thing that's true about Luke's birth narrative, uh, the word, the Greek word for peace shows up more than in any other New Testament document. Hmm. And I am convinced that, um, and this is, this is not any great revelation, but Jesus has come to bring peace uh, and, and that for me is the main message of Advent that, that Jesus has come to bring peace. And I think the gospel of Luke works this whole thing out. Therefore, as his follower, I am to be at peace and a peacemaker. Um, and, and as I look at the world around me, especially in, in the craziness that's going on around us, uh, especially here in this country, but not, not limited to this country, we need peacemakers, uh, but that is so much easier said than done. Peacemaking is extremely hard work, um, but, but that's, that's my Advent message to myself and to anyone who will listen. Let us be of peace and uh, peacemakers. Amen. Dr. Jim McConnell, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Court, any final words for our listeners as we close? I want to thank you and wish you a Merry Christmas. And I also want to thank uh, Dr. Jim McConnell. And always thank you, Peter, for putting up with me and my silly questions. And I enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks, guys. No, I just want to thank you all, too. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is Pastor Potluck. I'm Peter Constanchin. I'm Court Green. And I'm Jim McConnell. Peace. Peace.